Please take your copy of God's Word, and we are continuing Ephesians chapter 4. If you were here last week, you know that we were hitting the ground running in the sermon, and we looked down and saw the time, and we said, all right, we've got to stop this thing and land the plane, and we'll pick up next week. So this is actually part two of a two-part uh, sermon that we began last week. If you missed last week, you can go online and, and listen to it. Uh, you can't do that now, so it's not going to be of any benefit for you now, but uh, I hope that as you leave here today, go back and listen because I, I, I'm going to give a brief review here in just these few moments, but I believe that this is a message that, that the church of Jesus Christ here in America needs to hear. So please stand in the honor of reading God's word, Ephesians chapter four, let's read the verses of scripture and then we'll uh, give a recap and we'll get into the new message, uh, the new things today. Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse number 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened to their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, God, I pray that we will open our hearts and hear a word from you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Two points of the message. Last week we dealt with point number one. This week we'll get into point number two. But just as a recap, because it's not going, point number two is not going to make sense unless we understand point number one. And I have a few more things that I need to say uh, in point number one that I was not able to say last week. Point number one was before Christ. And what we find in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, Paul is telling us who we were before Jesus, who we were before we were saved. You see, a lot of us have been saved for so long, we forget what it's like to be lost. We forget what it's like for those who, who don't know Christ, how they're living their life and, and how they think and how they act and how they react. And what we're seeing in our country today should not surprise us because it's simply just a reaction out of the heart of someone who is lost. Lost people are going to do what lost people are going to do. Lost people are going to think the way lost people are going to think. And so Paul gives us a diagram here. He gives us a playbook for how lost people think. He says, first of all, that before Christ, the mind is empty. The mind is empty. In fact, he says the mind, it's futility. Futility, it's futile. Verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17, talks about the futility of the mind. That word futility, as we said last week, it's the same word as vanity. It means emptiness. It means uh, empty thinking, illogical thinking, vain thinking. We talked about the story of Solomon, and we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, basically Solomon's biography, and he said, we said that here was a man who sought after everything of the world, and, and as soon as he thought he achieved it, he went to grab the metal, and poof, it went away. He thought he could acquire wisdom, and that was going to satisfy him in life. He, he thought he was going to be able to acquire fortune, and that was going to satisfy him in life. He, he thought he could find pleasure, and, and all he had to do was live it up, and he was going to find satisfaction in life, and as as soon as he thought he arrived, he went out to grab that trophy and poof, it went away. And he said, after it all, he said, vanity, 
of vanities. All is vanity. Futility of futility. All is futility. Emptiness of emptiness. It is all empty. Life is a big fat zero without God. It all disappeared. So not only was the mind empty, futility, but we also said the heart is hardened. That's foolishness. In verse 18, he talks about the hardening of the heart. That word hardening, it, it's where we get our word, a, a heart as, 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 as hard as stone. A heart that is hard as stone. Our text here refers to this hardening of heart. It describes the inability and unwillingness to respond to God's truth. You see, when your mind is empty, when you have vain thinking or empty thinking, your heart will become hardened and you'll have foolish thinking. You see, futile thinking, empty thinking results in foolish thinking. Again, we we can't hold this. I mean, the sinners are going to think this way. Lost people are going to think this way. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Those that reject God, according to Romans chapter 1, are professing themselves to be wise, but yet they became fools. People who reject Jesus Christ walk in the darkness and they're foolish. They think foolish thoughts. Number three, we said the spirit is dead. This is fatality. Again, verse 18. From emptiness and hardness comes deadness. Paul said this in verse 18. He said, you're separated from the life of God. If you are separated from God, God is the life giver. When you are separated from the life giver, you're dead. You say, now wait a minute. I know a lot of sinners, a lot of people that are, they don't, are not followers of Jesus and they're just as much as alive as I am. Their heart's beating, their mind is thinking. Listen, he's not talking about physical death here. He's talking about spiritual death. And those that are trying to live their life apart from God, the Bible says, are spiritually dead. There is a death that is on in their spirit, and they, it is a fatal way to live. Then finally, we said the life is reckless. The mind is empty. The heart is hard. The spirit is dead. And all of that results in a reckless life. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Verse 19, what a verse that is so apropos for our culture today. People who have, their, their minds are so empty, their hearts are so hard, and their spirit are so dead, they're so far away from God that they live in any kind of life they want to live, this filthiness, and they can't get enough of it. They want more and more and more, and they lust, it says, for more. What a description. Having lost all sensitivity, that means they've become calloused over. And it was here where I shared with you. I shared with you from... Two weeks ago, the ruling that happened last Friday, I shared with you the church's position. And I addressed our stance. And I told you that neither I, nor as long as I serve as pastor of Aloma Church, this church, nor I will ever, 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 will we ever uh, host a same-sex wedding in this church. You say, preacher, and... Preacher, no one's forcing you to marry anyone. Just wait, it's coming. If they can force businesses like this cake baker in the, in the state of Oregon, if they can shut them down, if they can put their, their hand, I don't know if you've seen the latest report, but now they're telling them they're not even allowed to speak out what their own thoughts are. So not only have they taken away their religious liberty, now they've taken away their freedom of speech. They've shut them down because they would not bake a cake for a homosexual 
wedding. If they're going to do that to a cake baker, don't you believe, don't you see, don't you understand that the church of Jesus Christ are in their crosshairs? And I don't think this is four years down the road either. This is right around the corner. You say, well, how did all this come about? Well, the last several elections, 7 million conservative evangelicals stayed at home. When 7 million people who believe that marriage is defined by one man and one woman, when 7 million people who believe their life, that believe that life begins at conception, when 7 million people would rather sit back and let what this country uh, has happened to this country fall into an immoral hellhole, friends, we got what we wanted. You say, preacher, you're marrying politics in the Bible. You just stick to preaching God's word and let someone else worry about the politics. Listen, I'm not the one that started this debate. I wish I didn't have to talk about it. I hate talking about these types of things. I don't like it at all. But I'm not the one that started it. The problem is people in politics think that they can come into our world. People in D.C. believe that they can come into the world of the church and define, or should I say redefine, something that God has very clearly said and what God has very clearly defined. And yes, I do view the reason why we're talking about this last week, the reason why we're talking about that this this week, is I believe that this is an attack on the very fabric of what God called holy and sacred. I'd be doing this, I'd be doing this church in this pulpit at this service if I didn't speak on these things. Because where else are we going to hear truth of what God says if it's not in church? I want you to take your Bible, keep your finger there in Ephesians chapter 4 and turn over to Genesis chapter 2. I want to share with you why I am speaking on this. It it breaks my heart that so many pulpits were silent last week and so many pulpits are going to be silent this week concerning what's happening in our country. And that's the problem that we're facing, that pulpits are silent on these matters. That's why we're in the mess that we're in today. Genesis chapter 2. I don't know how much more clear God can be. In Genesis chapter 1, that's the creation story, right? On day 1, in six days, God created everything that we see. On day 1, God created light and dark. He said, it's good. On day 2, God separated the sky and the waters, and he said, it's good. On day 3, he he brought dry land out of the water. He said, it's good. On day 4, he put the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets in the sky, and he said, it's good. On day, uh, on day five, he put the birds in the air and the fish in the sea, and he said, it's good. On day six, he created all the beasts that walk on the land, and he, cre- and he, he said, it's good. And then he created man, and the first negative thing God ever said, he said, he created man, he said, that ain't good. Guys, that should be offensive to us. He created us, and he said, that ain't good. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he created for him a helpmate. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and all the in the heavens. Look down to verse uh, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, underline this next phrase, one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This one flesh. Verse 24 tells us that they, they became one flesh. This is why sexual sin in the Bible is so often elevated. It's because of this covenant. When you read the New Testament, when you read the Old Testament, it, you know, off, obviously we know that all sin, sin is sin in God's eyes, right? When God looks at sin, he hates all sin. But oftentimes when we read the Old Testament, the New Testament, we see that sexual sin is often elevated. It's often spoken of in more extreme terms. The reason why it goes back to Genesis 2.24 and this covenant, the husband shall leave his, his mother and father, the two shall come together, the husband and the wife shall come together and form one flesh. This is a covenant. It can only happen between a man and a woman. This type of, of covenant cannot happen between two men or two women. It's not possible. It's not possible. The only way it works is for a man or a woman to come together. And God said, this is sacred. This covenant is sacred under God. My generation keeps asking, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if, if, if homosexuals get married? It doesn't hurt you. The reason why it matters, two things. Number one, again, it's not possible for homosexuals to come together in this type of union. And become one flesh. It's not possible. It can't happen that way. It requires one man and one woman. Therefore, what is happening with the homosexuals, they're not being married in the sight of God. Marriage is between one man, one woman, period. Period. They can't redefine it. Number two, the reason why I'm against it is because it's harmful. Keep your finger there in Ephesians 4. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to show you something in God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's harmful. First Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse number 9. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to notice that homosexuality is simply just one of many sins that's mentioned here in this, in these, in these sins that, that Paul mentions that say that if people practice these, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's, it's not the only one, but it's one of many. Homosexuals, listen to me, homosexuals are not in a special class of sinners. As we said last week, we don't respond to the gays out of anger or hatred. We understand that homosexuality is simply a sin like a host of many other things are. And you may be sitting here today and you don't struggle with homosexuality. You don't struggle with that temptation. That's, that's good. I'm glad that you don't struggle with that temptation. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it, it doesn't just say homosexuals won't inherit the kingdom of God. It also says idolaters won't inherit the kingdom. How's your, how's your deal with your, with your money and your finances? Are you idolizing your money? The Bible here says that, that adulterers don't inherit the kingdom of God either. Have you cheated on your wife? Have you cheated on your husband? Have you lusted after a person? Jesus said if you've lusted after a man or a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. So you see, the point what I'm saying here is simply this, that our purpose is not to magnify one sin or the other. I hope that you understand the reason why I'm dealing with homosexual marriage today is not to demoralize the homosexual. The reason why I'm talking about it is because our culture is talking about it. Of all the sins mentioned here, the only one that's being glamorized in our culture today is that one sin of homosexuality. That's why I'm speaking on it. The reality is the homosexual is not the only ones mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. You know who else is mentioned here? You and me. 
Our sins are mentioned right here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. And what we understand, what we must understand is without Jesus, there is no hope. Without God, there is no hope. And if you continue to live this life, as he mentioned here before Christ, with your eyes closed, your heart hardened, your, your spirit dead, and you're living in filthiness, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we don't need to get on our high horse and claim moral superiority here. But our message must be consistent Our message must be consistent. We don't just cry out against homosexuality and elevate and say, that's the one sin that that we have to stand against. No, no. The church must take a stand against homosexuality, but the church must also take a stand against all of the other sins. It's not about being hateful or being biblical. We're not trying to suppress people's rights. We're doing what God has called us to do, which is to reject sin. Everyone keeps saying, love, 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 love. It's all about love. Love wins. And you know what? Love does win. But love did not win last Friday, two weeks ago. Love won 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's when love won. Ephesians 4.15. Flip back over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4.15 tells us how we are to speak. Everybody says, oh, we just need to love, we need love, we need love, we need love. And it is true, we speak out of love. We don't hate anyone. There should be no animosity coming out of our heart at all for an individual, for a person. It says that we are to speak in love, but what kind of love? How are we to speak? We are to speak the truth in love. We are to speak the truth in love. And what God says is holy is holy. What God says is unholy is unholy. And therefore we can speak and we must speak the truth in love. This Wednesday we're going to be showing a movie called Monumental. I hope that you can come. I believe that every single Christian uh, that's, that lives in this country should see this movie. That's why we made it completely free. You come. You come this Wednesday at 6.30 and you, you can watch this movie again. I believe that it is very important for everyone to be able to see. Now, I need to get on my soapbox. I was on my soapbox last week, and that's why I ran out of time. I need to get back on my soapbox for just a moment. I'm going to tick some people off, but that's okay. Because, again, if it's not said from the pulpit, then where else are we going to hear it? Yesterday was Independence Day. Yesterday was the birthday of our great country. 239 years old, our country is. And you men and women who stood earlier in the service, you served in the armed forces, you sacrificed to make this country great. And many men and many women have gone before even you fighting for this idea of freedom. In particular, our country was founded for freedom and and a particular kind of freedom. You know what kind of freedom? Religious freedom. That's why our nation was founded. Our forefathers were were leaving the tyranny of England and they came to seek religious freedom. The Constitution, the Constitution, remember that, that Constitution? We seem to have forgotten about it in our country today. The Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the, the, the Bill of Rights, all of these were birthed out of biblical principles and ideologies. This document that is that, that all the people of the land are supposed to be governed. However, we have long forgotten the Constitution. I believe that we have neutered the Constitution dating back to Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade, the, the judicial system, a, a, a judge decided, a judge decided that of the most innocent of lives, these precious unborn, these babies who you would think were in the safest place in the world they could be in their mother's womb, this judge said in Roe v. Wade, no. That life doesn't matter. 
And from that point, 60 million lives have ended. 60 million lives. Shouldn't the unborn be protected? Doesn't the Constitution, doesn't doesn't the Bill of Rights apply to the unborn? A heart that is beating, a mind that is thinking? Now, while, while I'm on this subject, we need to decide. As a country, we, we need to be honest and we need to decide something. We need to decide whether or not we're going to keep the Constitution or we're going to throw it out. Because I, I'm tired of this waffling back and forth. You know, I, in playing Monopoly or playing the game of life growing up, I always hated playing with my brother and sister because when I started winning, they changed the rules in the middle of the game so they could win. That's not right. You can't change the rules in the middle of Monopoly. You can't make Boardwalk worth nothing and, and your little Baltic Avenue worth a million dollars. You can't do that. But you know what? That's what the liberals in our country have done. They claim the Constitution when it fits them, but when it doesn't fit them, they say, oh, no, that's just a worthless piece of document. It's not being upheld by the men and women who were sworn by oath to uphold it. Have you ever heard of the Tenth Amendment? The Tenth Amendment was ratified in 1791. It says the federal government possesses only the powers delegated to it by the Constitution. All remaining powers are reserved for the states of the people. In other words, D.C., the federal government, the only power, the only rights they have is what's defined for them in that little constitution. All of the other rights are given to the states and to the people. The only power they should have is in the constitution. That's it. Therefore, it is not up to nine people in black robes to dictate to the people of this country what we believe. And it's certainly... It is certainly not their job to redefine something that they have no power or authority to do. The Supreme Court is not in Washington, D.C. The Supreme Court is in heaven. And our God has already told us how we define marriage. Furthermore, if I've not ticked you off, I might do it right now. In 2008, two years before God called us, well, I guess four years before God called us to Florida, In 2008, the citizens of the sovereign, the sovereign state of Florida voted 62% to 38% not in favor of homosexual marriage. In 2008, you voted and said, no, marriage is between one man and one woman, period. That happened in 2008. This past August, a, a judge, a singular judge in the state of Florida overturned the will of the people and said the will of the people is unconstitutional. As Ronald Reagan said, government is meant to serve the people, not the other way around. And then again, five justices last Friday, two of which should have recused themselves from the vote because these two ladies have already been performing homosexual and gay marriages, one of them while the proceedings was going on. This shows that their ruling was not blind. They were already partial to one side. They don't have, according to the 10th Amendment, the constitutional right to tell states what they're to do. And if our governor had a backbone, if our governor had a backbone like some of these other governors in Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas, if our governor had a backbone, he would have stood up to D.C. and said, no, the people have already spoken. You can keep what you just told us. Now, I hope you understand. 
I hope you understand this is not a Republican or a Democrat issue. We have a Republican governor. We have a Democratic president. It's not about Republic or Democrat. The reason why I'm speaking out against the president, the reason why I'm speaking out against the governor, the reason why I'm freaking out against these nine justices is because they're meddling in something they should not be meddling in, period, period. And the hope of our country is not in politics. Hear me. I'm not telling you you should vote for this person. You should. It's not about who we vote for. It's not about who we put into office. It's who we've taken out of office is the problem. When you remove God and you remove Jesus from the equation, this is what happens. Can we go back to the screens, guys? This is what happens. We wonder why we're in the mess that we're in. This is why we're in the mess we're in. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that without Christ, this is what you get. Open your eyes. See that this is not getting any better. Now I'm going to get off my soapbox. I don't believe that God is finished with this country. I cannot believe that God is finished with this country. I, if, 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 I didn't, if I didn't care and I didn't love this country, I, I wouldn't even be talking about this right now. But I'm talking about this because I've got kids. I'm talking about this because you've got kids. You've got grandkids and great-grandkids. And don't you want them to experience, until Jesus comes, don't you want them to experience the United States that you experienced? Don't you want them to experience freedom where they can come to a church and not be worried about a tyrannical government telling them what they have to do? And guys, listen to me. We're not casting blame. But if we were, we're just as much to blame as anyone else. Because this happened on our watch. This happened when, when we were holding the keys. This didn't happen on our parents' watch. It didn't happen on our grandparents' watch. The World War II generation, they would never have let this stuff happen. Their parents would never have let this stuff happen. The church has become neutered. And it's time. It's time for us to stand up and say what is right is right, what is wrong is wrong, call black, black, call white, white, and let's just let the chips fall where they may. We have to be prepared to honor God and to stand on his word. And yes, I believe that persecution is coming. But we have to stand. And we have to, we cannot condone what God has forbidden. We cannot accept what God has told us to reject. I'm already out of time again. And all I did was give a recap of last week. Can I have 10 minutes? Okay, somebody said two hours, I'm taking it. Now you're looking at your watch. All right, point number two is after Christ. This starts verse 20. After Christ, he talks about our, who we were before Jesus. Now he talks about who we are after Jesus. Notice verse 20 and verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 4. Look at it. 
But this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. This is talking about redemption. Verse 21, in Jesus. Remember when we started walking through the book of Ephesians several weeks ago, I told you to underline all the prepositional phrases that you find in Jesus, in Christ, in him. I said they're throughout the book of Ephesians. Here's another one where it says that we are in Jesus. There's another one. Ephesians 1, 7 says that in him or in Jesus, we have uh, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And after Christ, we know redemption. We must know redemption. Redemption. What is redemption? Redemption means to purchase back. In other words, what you were before Jesus, verses 17 through 19, that's not the original intent of what God has planned and destined for your life. You were created for a purpose and a plan in mind. But sin grabbed a hold. Sin uh, laid hold of you and you lived in futility and foolishness, verses 17 through 19. But he says, but Jesus has redeemed you. Jesus paid the price for your sin and through his blood, you can put off the old ways. As a believer, as a believer, we have not just heard about him, we know him. This is what he says. You didn't just hear about him, but you know him. And I believe that's the problem within our churches today. So many people know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. So many people are staking their eternal destiny on knowing about Jesus, but yet they don't know Jesus. And friend, listen, there's a world of difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. I know about Billy Graham. I know many facts and figures about this man. I've, I've actually been in the same room. One of my, my most exciting times in my life, I was in the same room as Billy Graham. I think he actually looked at me. He was a ways away, but I, he glanced my direction. I don't know him personally. I don't know him intimately. But I've read his sermons. I've read his books. I've read his words. I know about him. But I don't know his inner thoughts. I don't know his hopes. I don't know his dreams. In the same way I know about Billy Graham, a lot of people know about Jesus. You know many figures and facts about him. You've read him, you've read about him in his book, the Bible. You've been in the same room as him today. Jesus is here. You're in the same room with Jesus. But you don't know him personally. It's not enough about being a good person. It's about redemption. You must understand that a change must take place in your life. It's about a relationship. You must know him. Verse 21 says he is truth. We know redemption. Then we must practice repentance. We must practice repentance. Look at verse 22. If you miss everything that I've said up to today, do not miss this point. Verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. Now jump to verse 24. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We all need to hear this. We've all, if you're a believer in Christ, you've been redeemed. You get that. You've got that. You cannot lose your salvation. Once you've been saved, you're always saved. But have you ever wondered why it is that Christians who have been saved, they're not growing like Jesus. They're not becoming more like Christ. They're not growing. They're not shedding their old ways. Paul tells us why. He said the Ephesians, he told the Ephesians, put off your old self, put off your old life, verses 17 through 19. You see this here in verse 21, uh, verse 22, put off your old self. If you circle that word old self, what he's referring to is what's found in verses 17 through 19. 
So put off verses 17 through 19, the futility, the foolishness, the hardening of heart. Put those things off and put on the new life. In effect, Paul is challenging them to repeatedly put off. This is not just a wants to put off the old garments and be saved. No, this is talking about sanctification. This is talking about holiness. You've already been saved, verses 20 and 21. You've been redeemed. So now verse 22 and verse 24, now act like you're redeemed. Act like you're saved. Put off the old and put on the new. This is what it's referring to. And this is a a, a daily thing, a consistent thing, a constant thing. This is just not a once and for all. This is a many times. How many times does scripture teach us that we are saved for so much more than heaven? If God simply saved you so you can go to heaven, he would have taken you to heaven as soon as you got saved. But he's called you for so much more to live this life, to live this Christian life, to live this holy life, repeatedly putting off the old garments, which is repentance. That's where we get our word repentance. The problem is, though, these old garments, they're comfortable, aren't they? Anybody have a favorite pair of blue jeans? They just fit right, don't they? I mean, you can't go to Gap or Old Navy or wherever you buy your jeans now. I don't know. But you can't, you can't find jeans that fit like your favorite pair of jeans, can you? They just, they just feel good. It doesn't matter if the pockets have already fallen off and there's holes in the, I mean, holes in the jeans. That, that's popular now, right? You, we went and we were looking at blue jeans and they actually had holes in the blue jeans. I thought, why would I want to buy a jean that already has holes in it? I thought the purpose of buying a jean was so I could put a hole in it. These old garments, they're comfortable. They're natural. We've worn them. They're, they're a part of us. They fit perfectly. We don't want to get rid of them. But that's the way it is with our former life. It's comfortable. It's what we know. This old way of life, this old way of thinking, it's, it's so much, it seems, it seems, because Satan is blind, it seems that it's so much easier to just go with the flow. If, if the country's going this way, we should just jump in line and go with them, right? No. No. If they're going against God's word, we have to stand against that. And, and yes, our, our old nature says, yeah, let's just go with the flow. Let's not make any waves. Let's not cause any problems. Let's just go with it. Let's just go with it. That's the old nature. That's the old ways. Many Christians stumble because they don't realize this, that they have to put off. They have to put off the old. If you're fighting lust, it must daily be shed. This is equally t- true if you fight with pride or bitterness or covetousness, all the sins. Daily confessing sins, taking off the garments. Now, I know that some Christians, they don't ever repent. Some Christians repent and you stop there. If you stop there, you're missing the boat again. Because verse 24 says, not only are you to repent and take off that which is old, but verse 24 says, now put on that which is new. We receive the old man at birth. We were given the new man at the heavenly birth. The new man is not our work. It's God's creation work. Our task is not to weave it. Our task is to wear it. Now listen, here's where so many Christians fail in the Christian life. I hope that none of you miss this truth that Paul is telling us right here. Are you listening? We don't put on the new man simply by taking off the old man. You do not put on the new man simply by putting... How do we put off the old man? Do you remember? Through repentance. 
by repenting, that's taking off the old. That's taking off the, 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 the old man and the, 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 the clothes that we used to wear. By repenting and saying, God, forgive me of, of, of those former things that we saw in verses 17, 19. Forgive me of that. Repent of that. And we stop right there. You know what you're doing? You're walking around naked because you've taken off the old and you ain't put anything on yet. You got more business to do. You got to put on the new. For example, it's easy to lose your temper with your kids, isn't it? Am I the only one? I know I'm not the only one. And we've got good kids, but there's times, there's times when Abigail does something and, and you just want to shake her, you know? Now, I don't, don't report me to the government. I don't shake my kids, but. You get down and you just look at them in their eyes and, and you, you look in their eyes and you, you know what you see? You see yourself and you knew that you did exactly the same thing to your parents. And so you call your parents and you say, I'm sorry for all that I did. And they just laugh. You know why they laugh? Because they were praying. When they were praying, when they wanted to shake you, they were saying, I pray that God gives you a kid just like you. I'm coming, brother. I'm trying to land the plane. I've got a few more things to say, though. You, if, if I lose my temper with my child, I have to repent of that. Ephesians 5, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. If, if, if I provoke my child to wrath, I have to repent of that. When I repent of that, that means I take off that old self, verses 17 through 19. I take off verses 17 through 19. If I stop there, there's a problem. I've not put anything else new on. You see, I have to put on love. God, forgive me for losing my temper with my child. Now help me to love them the way you love them. Give me the patience. Oh God, give me the patience. You know what a good place to start? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. That's a good place to start to put on the new self. When you take off the old and you repent, go and study Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Find two or three of those that you are struggling with, the sin that you committed that you have to repent of, find some fruit of the Spirit that you're praying, God, help these fruit of the Spirit be manifested in my life. And when you're doing that, not only are you taking off the old, but you're putting on the new. Ephesians 4, 24. Again, he says this, put on the new self. How do we do this? This is the final. It's through renewal. Verse 23. He gives us the how. Verse 23. To be renewed. Be made new in the attitude of our minds. This is a, a, a holdover from Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's will is. 
The point is this, that if you put on the new self, the way you put on the new self, you cannot do that if you're not in God's word. You cannot do that if you're not in prayer. You cannot do that if you're not connected with a group of believers. The way, the way you put on the new self is through God's word. The way you put on the new self is by walking with him and talking with him and being in his spirit. That's how you do it. The renewing of the mind. That's why this year, the year of, of scripture memory, it's so important that you flood your mind with scripture. You flood your mind uh, with, with, with prayer and all of this. And so the way we put it on is through the renewal of our mind.